Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Certainty is not a word that anyone would use at the moment to describe the government's directions on the coronavirus outbreak with changing arguments on face masks, for example, and rewritten plans, such as the date that schools will fully open. But here's one certainty. There are going to be a lot of post-mortems of the government's handling of the crisis. Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, says an inquiry into coronavirus is inevitable. We'll ask what an inquiry might mean and when it should happen. And we'll also look at recent changes that the Prime Minister has made within Number 10 to get a better grip. We'll discuss whether they're going to work. As for Keir Starmer, it's two months since he became leader of the opposition. How has he been holding the government to account? And what should an opposition do in a crisis? We'll look at that question too. Joining me in our virtual studio today are the IFG's constitutional expert, Kath Haddon. Welcome. Thank you. Hello. Alex Thomas, who leads our civil service work. Hi, Alex. Hi, Bronwyn. Emma Norris, Director of Research, who's been working on inquiries. Hi, Bronwyn. And I'm delighted to be joined today by political commentator, author, broadcaster, Steve Richards. Great to have you here. Hello. Steve, tell me, pre-lockdown, one of your many hats was that of one-man raconteur and performer in your rock and roll politics shows. Any plans to take that into the digital era? Yes. Um, actually, this has one of, been one of the upsides of the lockdown, that you can do a virtual show. And I've done several. Uh, and of course, it reaches a much bigger audience than when you're in a live theatre, however big. Um, and I'm doing one next Wednesday, June the 17th is the next one. And you can get tickets on the King's Place website. And there's a lot of interaction and it's quite similar to a normal public event. So it's been good for my therapy, if nothing else. How soon do you, oh, how, when do you decide what goes into it? Right before. About five minutes before. I mean, <laughs> things are so fast moving and themes, as you know, and have been covering brilliantly, um, th- themes emerge suddenly and unexpectedly and you have to think about them. And the idea of these shows is to delve deeper uh, beyond the sort of 10 minutes on the Today programme or, well, no, not 10 minutes, three minutes to sort of just explore the underlying currents, as you do in some respects. Um and uh, I, I'm, I'm hooked on, I've been doing it for some time, but they are a very interesting experience. And the audience is very engaged. Well, thanks for that. And as you said, uh, you know, even an hour in politics is a long time at the moment. Yeah. Let's go to our first subject, inquiries. And the question of an inquiry, or maybe more than one, is going to be held into the government's handling of the coronavirus in fact, this week, the IFG has said that uh, we, we very much back that. Emma, in your view, you've been writing about this. When should an inquiry be held? So I think there has to be a full public inquiry into the response to coronavirus, given um, you know, the scale of the crisis. And government needs to start thinking right now about setting up that full inquiry, as it's going to take time. Questions of scope, how to involve families, these are always hugely complicated questions that are going to be even more complicated um, given the scale of coronavirus. But a full public inquiry, even if it was announced in the next few months, is going to take a lot of time to set up. Um, and they typically take years to report. You know, Chilcot took seven years. The Savile Inquiry took 12 years. We can't wait that long, given a second wave of coronavirus could be coming this autumn or winter. So I think the immediate focus should be on setting up a rapid lessons learned style exercise before a full inquiry, or perhaps as the first step um, in a full inquiry to make sure that government's um, better prepared for a second wave. So essentially, that should start as soon as possible. 
So who do you want to set this up? Is it is it the government itself? Is it Parliament? Is it a, a completely independent lot of people? So I think there are a range of options for how you set it up. Um, I think the preferred one would be that this is the first step of a full inquiry process. So set up by government with an independent chair and bringing in um, a range of expertise in public health and epidemiology and indeed government itself. Um, But I think at the minimum, you need to have some kind of continuity between this rapid review and then the full inquiry to make sure that some personnel is shared and some information is shared. Yeah. And what, what are the questions that a rapid re- review would actually try and answer? Because we had the Prime Minister yesterday saying, look, it's too soon to judge. Uh, and, and his point is it's going to take a long time to work out what the, the excess deaths are in every country and also to work out what the economic um, picture has been and that these, he's weighing these two things against each other. So he, in his view, not now. Um, but what are the questions that would be useful to ask now, as you said, that, that uh, could be used in, um, uh, if there were a second wave? So I'd expect to see a couple of things like what measures have made the biggest impact on reducing um, infections so far? Uh, What do we know about the effective timing of measures um, based on what has happened so far? How can government improve the delivery of key decisions? So, for instance, some of the economic package has been implemented quite effectively. What can other areas learn from this, given there have been big delivery challenges? Um, I think The Prime Minister is absolutely right to say that we only have partial information at the moment. But Chris Whitty, Patrick Vance have already been clear that we know enough to start reacting to what we have already done and updating our approach for the second wave. We have the benefit of knowing a lot more now, for instance, about the virus than we did when the pandemic first began. So a review um, that can look back on how we first responded and learn about what's been most effective to better prepare us for a second wave has got to be worthwhile. Steve, what do you reckon? I follow very closely the various reviews into the uh, Iraq war. There were many, there were the select committees, there was Chilcot, there was Hutton. Um, And one of the things which I think will determine this, I absolutely agree that it would be fantastic to have a short-term inquiry as part of a much fuller one. But looking at the way government thinks about this, and it will be the government's decision when and what the remit will be and in what form, I fear that their self-interested calculations will think we're already dreading one inquiry. We're certainly not going to have two. And I think there is one legitimate reason for that in that they are, I am told, already paranoid, neurotic about this inquiry even in its vague form, we don't know what form precisely it's going to be. That's this notional inquiry that everyone is talking about, but nothing formal about it yet. Nothing formal, but I'm told that they all are already thinking, let's not put that on an email in case it comes into an inquiry. What if I say this, if it turns out to be wrong and goes into the inquiry? They're already worried about the amount of energy uh, this fighting this pandemic is taking. For them then to have the energy, this is from from their self-interested perspective, to prepare for an inquiry, which they're already obsessed about, I think they will avoid. Yeah, uh, Yeah, you call it a calculation, but it doesn't seem a desperately difficult calculation. I mean, Kath and Alex, uh, all you're probing into the the heart of government, do you think the the fear of um, an inquiry really changes how people are doing their jobs day by day? I think it does. Um, 
it's interesting. I was actually talking to some cabinet secretaries about this uh, yesterday, three former cabinet secretaries, um, and they were saying that... Do watch our live event. Absolutely, an early plug. Um, <laughs> and they were saying that uh, it didn't hugely occur to them. They always know in their job that, you know, they will be judged by parliament, by future inquiries and by history uh, in terms of what they're doing. They're at the centre of government. But mostly they were focused on getting the job done. But they all acknowledge that it feels much more like that is a concern at the moment. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion going around about those early decisions, about where blame lies. And this is one of the problems that if they look at this early lessons learned exercise, uh, Emma's rapid review as being just a blame game, then it will become distorted and it will increase the distortions going on in, in decision making at the moment. But what it should be, and the Prime Minister did acknowledge this, that you've got to start learning those lessons for, um, you know, if this comes back in the autumn. So they need to concede that this is about how to gather information and to make sure that when they're talking to the public in the autumn, they're able to say, we've reviewed what we've done. And this is now what we think should happen. Because if they don't say that, then they'll still get the criticisms, but without any kind of supporting evidence that shows that they are actually learning as they go along. I I largely agree with that, uh, and certainly this is not uh, this is not a government that has shown itself uh, you know eager to embrace uh, you know self reflection and uh, acknowledgement of mistakes. And I was very struck. I mean, Emma referred to it uh, earlier by the contrast between uh, the prime minister at the um, uh, briefing this week, where he was very keen not to. Uh, uh, recognise um, yet that, that, that it was the right time for inquiry and, and Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, who almost seemed eager to uh, to start to, to, to make the point that there were things to learn about testing uh, and, and, and uh, track and trace, uh, for example. But I, I, I do think there is yeah, no question uh, there is a nervousness and an anxiety about uh, about an inquiry. No question people are getting their timelines out and, uh, and, and the, the blame game is starting to begin. I do think, though, uh, for most officials working in government, and I'll include uh, civil servants and ministers, you know, they should be, they are used to scrutiny, to accountability, to be ha- having to account for themselves uh, <clears throat> in Parliament. It, it shouldn't be an enormous distraction if, and it's an enormous if, it's framed as a genuine lessons learned exercise. And I think that goes to the point that Emma was making about trying to separate out, I mean, I completely agree with Steve, whether the government would want to do this or will do this is a huge question. We're trying to separate out genuinely reflecting on what has worked, what hasn't worked, and not throwing the blame word around too much uh, until you get into uh, the next phase of a, of a more formal public inquiry. I mean, all that sounds very civilised, but I mean, do people actually start behaving differently? You've worked at the heart of government, Alex. You know, do they start taking notes, keeping diaries, uh, making sure there's a, a, an email trail or, or make sure there isn't one? Yeah, so I've, I've been lucky uh, not to be in the, in the beating heart of uh, too many inquiries, thank, thank, thank goodness. But um, yes, it does change behaviour, but but not, not perhaps as much as you might uh, think. I mean, c- civil servants are always, and I'm thinking about civil servants now rather than ministers so much, they're always uh, you know, relatively cautious about what they uh, what they put on email. They, they always have half an eye to uh, accountability. The, the difference, uh, and I think it, it, it goes to the kind of constitution of an inquiry, is if if you are legally obliged to hand over e- those emails, if you're legally obliged to do this stuff, that does that does change the um, that changes the calculus a little bit. Um, it is unusual for um, uh, for a government to sort of know that an inquiry is coming, and it's relatively unusual for um, uh, for there to be an inquiry into the current government. I mean, there have been examples in the past, like Leveson uh, uh, looking at a government that remains in office. The difference here is that it 
it, 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 it is a government, an inquiry looking into a government that stays in power. All that said, and I take your point, Bromley, it, it will be more brutal and more, more difficult than this kind of nice conceptual idea. But we have to learn these lessons somehow. Uh, the, the, the public confidence in the decisions of the government is so important at the moment that we need to find some kind of mechanism for getting this out and learning, and learning uh, what we can from the first phase. But Emma, just as we wrap up this section, um, you know, some, some big things that go wrong uh, don't have inquiries. I'm thinking of Afghanistan, for, for example. Perhaps everyone was just so exhausted by the Iraq inquiry, uh, which covered some similar issues, but not, not all the same. What, in your view, uh, is going to force the government to have an inquiry in this? I think um, the scale um, of the crisis, it is a crisis that has touched um, almost everybody in the country in some way, whether that's because you have been a victim of coronavirus yourself or have a family member who has been, or you have experienced um, the kind of changes that have been introduced to our lives as a result. Um, I think the scale of the death toll in the UK is clearly going to force a crisis at the moment. It looks like we have one of the highest tolls in the world. Um, and I think as a result of that, there are going, there's going to need to be a vehicle to answer some of those questions, to understand what happened, why it happened and how to hold people to account, but also crucially to understand what needs to change as a result. We need to prepare for a second wave, but we also need to be better prepared for a possible future pandemic. And I think an inquiry is going to be one of the best ways to ensure we are prepared. Well, thanks for that. And thanks for joining us um, uh, for this uh, discussion and for your work on it. And everyone do look out for an IFG live event we're going to be holding about how this inquiry should be run. Let's move on to number 10 and delivery or getting it done. It's clear that any inquiry is going to look at what seems to have been an unfortunate habit for the government, announcing a policy before checking if it can deliver that policy. I was talking to German televisions at EF yesterday, and it was actually one of their main questions, one of their main perspectives. They said uh, Germany was asking why the British government kept doing this, such as reopening schools and then not being able to, what to do about the borders open for so long, now closed with a quarantine, and so on. Alex, what's going on here? There is clearly an increasing disjoint or there has been over the past few months between the announcements that the government is making and their confidence that they can deliver those announcements it is a government that's been uh, that's been announcement driven i think in part that is uh, sort of feeding the beast of the daily press conference and needing uh, themes and uh, and announcements uh, for that um, it's also because i'm not uh, i'm not sure that the that, that the government has yet found the mechanism to join up the uh, realities of implementation and delivery and getting it done as you said bronwyn with that um, uh, the 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 sense of strategy and uh, direction in part that's because we're in a crisis and they've uh, not had time to consult uh, and they've not had time to do things in the normal way but equally we have seen with things like the economic support package they could do some uh, uh, incredibly rapid consultation phone up the unions phone up the business groups and where there is a desire to consult very very quickly you can do it they could have got the teaching unions in uh, uh, sooner uh, and, and, and they chose not to um, so one of the uh, interesting th interesting things that's happened in the last couple of weeks is they've 
uh, reformed the uh, the mechanisms at the centre of government. They brought in uh, uh, someone called Simon Case, who was a uh, former uh, senior civil servant as a permanent secretary in Number 10. They've created what they're calling the uh, uh, CS Corona Strategy Committee and uh, CO Corona Operations Committee, which is heavily built on the Brexit model that, um, that Number 10 feels uh, got Brexit done, uh, at least, uh, though, though others would dispute that. Um, and so they're trying to join up the uh, across the different uh, subject areas in, in public services, health, education, uh, and the economy uh, and the response to the crisis. Uh, and, and at the same time, kind of have a better link between the strategic direction and the uh, the operations. So whether this all works, we'll we'll see. But um, I, I I do know that Number Ten are aware of the challenge of of, of joining all of this up and feel like uh, like there are improvements to be made, which goes slightly back to our previous discussion about inquiries and learning lessons. I want to dig into the schools example though, just in a bit more detail, because it seems to me fascinating about what it tells us about what is um, going wrong. Um, uh, we've talked about the teaching unions and, and not being consulted. And so, okay, that might have told the government that the teaching unions were, were, were not going to be keen on this. But if you just take one thing the government has said of, of directing smaller class sizes and what it's said about social distancing, uh, immediately all kinds of other things were bound to follow, that schools were going to find it very hard uh, to have the capacity, the physical capacity. Um, uh, would they have enough teachers? Uh, uh, would they have to slim down the curriculum in order to... Um, have enough classes. Um, there was no, it seemed to be plan for how this was going to work, even before you get into questions of whether the teaching unions were happy with it or not. I mean, Steve, what does it, what does it tell you about, uh, about what's going, going on? Because we know the government really wanted to do this um, and, and yet wasn't able it, to. I know it's a cliche, but not all cliches are wrong. But um, this government, more than most actually, and more than New Labour, which were also, as we all know, obsessed by headlines and the media, govern as a campaign. And I know that the date, whenever it was, that they announced that schools would go back at this particular point, they were thrilled because some bad story was knocked off the news pages and this uh, announcement uh, became front page news. They hadn't consulted at all. They had decided on this date and then tried to work out how to do it and then found they couldn't. And it seems to me that on all these issues, including the reconfiguration of number 10, it's about learning how to govern, how to implement, which is wholly different from getting a front page story or campaigning um, and learning the structures of the government that previous administrations during this Tory era set up. I'm told that many in number 10 didn't understand the structure of the NHS following the coalition Andrew Lansley reforms, which gave power to agencies such as NHS England, Public Health England, and so on. So we have a centralised political culture where if a prime minister falls ill, everyone says, what the hell are we going to do? How can we cope? But we actually have not had a really serious, centralised set of mechanisms to deliver and implement. You have a set of uh, mechanisms from number 10 to get front pages and media stories, but not implementation. Whether this reconfiguration works depends on a wider capacity to get a grip on the way government works as currently structured, and whether decisions are made sensibly with consultation, clearly worked through in advance. Um, or not. I mean, you could appoint tons of gurus in number 10. If you don't do that, it won't work. But they are right, I think, given the centralised culture, 
to try and get a grip with these new appointments. But it does then depend on a strategic sense of how you govern. One, uh, one nugget on that is that it's, you know, it's 12 weeks to the day, as we record, since the Prime Minister said it would be 12 weeks before the government had turned the tide on the virus. Now, you can argue whether the tide has been turned or not, but I have, I have no doubt that when that announcement was made, there was a completely no sort of rationale or justification for it. It was a headline, as Steve says. Yeah, Yeah, and we've had several of these. We had the famous 100,000 tests and so on, and all kinds of declarations about summer holidays and uh, 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 and so on. Um, how much is the Prime Minister, under this new structure that he set up with all these new labelled um, uh, committees, how much is he really trying to do the implementation? How much does he have to get into the details of how it gets done? This was one of the interesting things about the liaison committee appearance the other week, um, because he was pushed on a lot of detail. And, you know, he he revealed several times that a huge amount of uh, Sherpa or official time had gone into preparing him for it. And there were a lot of details areas where he didn't seem to sort of fully know it um, be across all of it. And I mean, people have said, you know, the fact that they're restructuring again and this line, again, communications, this line has been put out um, that uh, the Prime Minister is now trying to get a grip has opened up the question of why didn't he before? Um, Prime Ministers work differently all the time. I mean, Steve knows this, he's written a very good book about uh, different Prime Ministers. But so they all have different skills to bring on it. Some are hugely detailed people, you know, they love wading into it. Some are more strategic minds. They delegate uh, and make sure that, you know, if they don't have that kind of trait, that sort of personality that really gets into the weeds on stuff like this, that they put somebody in place that they can. But they've still got to have an understanding of what are the sort of the risks involved. What? How do the details fit into to your overarching strategy? Um, and I think that's one of the issues that people are talking about. I think the other one, though, is about whether or not the prime minister is sending out clear signals to his team about how he wants this whole thing, how he wants the whole operation to work, because that's another reason why they could be pulling in different directions while you're getting sort of announcements. You know, there's a good chance that these announcements have been made by different people. You know, the one, the hundred thousand test was made by Matt Hancock. How much was number 10 involved in that? Um, so it's also about how, what kind of message he's sending out about his grip on the people as well as his grip on the, on the, the detail of the policy. You know, Alex, coming to, I mean, the, the, the people, I mean, we've been talking rather coyly about machinery and so on, but I mean, what, we, you know, what about the cabinet secretary who sits at the middle of all this and uh, is supposed to be, I, I'm not going to spin out machine metaphors, but I mean, he's supposed to be the one who helps the prime minister get it done. Does it mean he, it, 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 the job's too big for that? Yeah, uh, well, and, and it's it's obviously, it's the responsibility of the Cabinet Secretary to be the principal advisor to the Prime Minister and the whole of the Cabinet to set up, um, and well, to advise on and then set up these committees and to make sure that the, um, to keep with the machine analogy, but the civil service machine um, is is working and is is doing what it needs to. But the, the limits, however powerful a cabinet secretary, there they have um, uh, limited powers as well. Um, uh, individual departments uh, have their own uh, have their own kind of baronial uh, cultures, histories, uh, objectives. This is a central. This is a centralising government, uh, and I think this comes back to this this point of the, um, uh, the, the the committees, and committees can't do everything. The, the Prime Minister and the Cabinet Secretary need to be uh, sufficiently on top of 
the detail that they know what's going on. They know who to delegate to. Of course, prime ministers have to delegate, um, uh, but they need to, as Kath was saying, uh, uh, have, uh, have, have enough of an understanding of what's going on and have the people around them who they can uh, trust, including the cabinet secretary, but also the um, uh, other, uh, other advisors in order to, you know, to be able to get the long screwdriver out sometimes and, uh, and be able to, uh, be able to, um, to, to make changes. One, one final point on this, and I, I know you can talk about people, Bromwin, so I apologise, but the um, data is really important. Information flows are really important. This is a government that is, is really interested in getting the right data, has put quite a lot of energy into uh, building uh, a machine in the centre of government so that data is flowing from the NHS, from schools. Um, the question now, I think, having, uh, as I understand it, you know, built that machine, how are they using it to really make the best possible decisions? And how uh, switched on is the Prime Minister himself to being able to use that data to put his colleagues and, and the people who work for him on the spot to say, well, come on, let's... Um, uh, you know, we need to focus on, on this particular issue at this particular time. Steve, drawing on, your, on the things you've written in your book, on the, the, the lessons of leadership, if you like, how much leeway should we give this government, any government really, but the, this one, for being um, a new government? I mean, obviously not brand new. Boris Johnson was prime minister before the election, but it just won this, this, this very dramatic election. Uh, came out of that, well, obviously, with the Brexit deadline of, of January 31st and all these other things. It was all set up and energised to do about rebuilding um, forgotten bits of the, of the UK. Um, should we give them any leeway for that? Well, I think if it was an entirely new government uh, coming in from opposition in their first term, quite a lot of leeway. I mean, this is an astonishingly complex challenge for any government and a new government, uh, overwhelmingly daunting. But this is only sort of half a new government. I mean, we are in the fourth term of a series of uh, either coalition or Tory governments. And in theory, Boris Johnson could have picked quite a range of experienced figures uh, to join his cabinet for other reasons, Brexit. He purged his party of quite a few experienced figures. So in that sense, they are new. And yes, I think there needs to be some leeway in acknowledging that a largely inexperienced cabinet, picked largely because of their commitment to Brexit, found themselves in the biggest crisis since 1945. But having said that, they also had quite a few things going for them, like advance warning that the virus was coming, seeing its impact elsewhere, etc. Let's use that as a point to talk about the opposition, talk about Labour. Being Prime Minister feels like an impossible task. Another familiar political cliche is that being leader of the opposition is the hardest job in politics. And if that's true, then being leader of the opposition during a national crisis must be even harder still, unless it gives him some distinct opportunities. So what do we make of Keir Starmer's first two months as Labour leader and at a time when the government is trying to whip up a sense of national pride and purpose? Is it a delicate task to oppose the government and hold the government to account? What do you all think? It is a delicate task in one fashion. And when Keir Starmer started two months ago, that was really where he he sort of pitched himself as, you know, I understand this is a national crisis. I want to do constructive opposition. I want to work with the um, government where possible, but I do want to offer opposition because it's important that the government be scrutinised and so forth. Um, so, and that was very much obviously him trying to pitch himself and also to try and pitch the Labour Party and the role of opposition within a national crisis, when at that point there was a fair amount of feeling of national unity. 
But that's changed a great deal. Um, a lot more criticism has been directed towards the government. Uh, a lot more has been discovered. A lot more is being discussed about the government's policy across a whole range of uh, fronts. We've discussed it today. So actually, at the moment, it's not a very difficult uh, proposition for, for an opposition to be sitting there. There's a huge amount for them to uh, analyse in terms of what the government's doing. Uh, there's an awful lot of other bodies who are doing that sort of, you know, day by day, uh, including Parliament, including an awful lot of external bodies who are, you know, analysing all different aspects of what the government is doing, offering their views, the unions, uh, you know, trade bodies, whoever it might be. So there's a lot of information out there as well, which is something that an opposition, because they have very few resources, often struggle with. Um, and they've got a clear um, th thing to focus on. Again, sometimes with a, an opposition, one of the difficulties is thinking, where do you focus yourself? What's the policy that you sort of hone in on? Um, again, here, it's quite obvious what those sort of issues should be. So on that front, um, you know, he's, he, again, if we're talking about advantages and disadvantages, he's been handed sort of a huge amount of advantages to be able to position himself, to position the Labour Party and so forth. Obviously, the key thing, really, when you're looking constitutionally at the role of the opposition is, is it making for a healthier government, a healthier democracy in doing so? So he'll be very focused, not just on doing it in order to boost the fortunes of the Labour Party, but actually wanting to make the crisis um, response better as a result of it. And Boris Johnson's tried a couple of reposts at Keir Starmer during Prime Minister's questions saying, ah, look, this isn't helpful. This isn't helpful to the sense of national solidarity to have all this carping criticism. I mean, Steve, do you think that's, uh, that's worked for him? Well, it's the only prop he's got, uh, the sense that they get from focus groups still, although I think it's diminishing, this appetite for national unity in the midst of a crisis. And if that had been the position, uh, I think Keir Starmer would have been in a, a very difficult situation where he would be seen largely as irrelevant, unable to do anything more than offer support in a period of great national consensus. And when he was first elected, that looked as if it could be his position, because there was huge personal sympathy for Boris Johnson, he had just emerged from hospital, etc. Um, but actually, this gap has emerged, of, as we've been discussing throughout the podcast, of uh, various areas where the gap between what the government has said and delivered has been vast. And it has uh, lent um, play to all his strengths of um, questioning as if in a court during Prime Minister's questions. So he's found a role very speedily uh, in the midst of this And he's crisis. found a persona, as you, as you said, I mean, kind of the, of the, of the QC that, that, that he is, uh, you know, and, and the, the word forensic is now being overused and uh, atta overused. At, attached to uh, Keir, Keir Starmer, but he's found this way of, of simply... Um, he, he firing, has, or reading out what the Prime Minister said recently and then asking him why it hasn't happened, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Now, he's got to widen his repertoire as a leader of the opposition. But for now, this is quite a, a, a distinct role. Boris Johnson doesn't do many interviews. The role given to Keir Starmer is almost unique of being able to challenge. Um, and that is something he's capable of doing. He's done it all his life. It's, it is an authentic role for him. As I say, there are many other roles a leader of the opposition will have to play. But at the moment, he has found an important and distinct role in a crisis that could have rendered him peripheral 
and irrelevant. Um, and so that is quite significant. And people form very quickly their views of a leader of the opposition. If he had been seen as irrelevant to peripheral, he would have found it very hard to move centre stage at a later date. He did have a bit more success with this this week of saying to Keir Starmer, look, you were, calling, you were saying that it wasn't safe to open schools and now you're berating me for not opening schools. What is it you want? Trying to turn back on him the question of what the policy is. But, uh, sorry, Alex, go on. The, the big, the huge question about Keir Starmer is whether he will be able to tap into the emotional story of this crisis and of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that, you know, we know as a lawyer, as Steve was saying, he can build his case. Um, I've been really struck over the last few weeks about how he's used documents. Uh, and as he was saying, Bromin, specific statements, because this is a government that quite likes to, um, uh, uh, you know, to, to throw up a lot of chaff and to create bluster, to create doubts about, uh, you know, about certainty about what was said and when. And, you know, he's, he's been at his most impressive across the dispatch box or elsewhere when he's picked up on a, a press release or a statement or a letter, whether it was about uh, care homes or schools or um uh, or, 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 or um uh, uh, the david norgrove letter on the misuse of statistics uh, he's the head of the office of national statistics uh, so storm has been able to do that he's been very effective for it as steve was saying he's it feels like this this crisis suits that sort of interrogation but there will come a moment when uh, uh, i think it, you know, emotion is needed and uh, leadership and those sorts mm. of qualities, and we just we don't know whether that's something that, that is in the repertoire at the moment. And we know also that this is one of the things that has been debated in terms of the virtual parliament, because from the government side, uh, you know, a practically empty chamber seems to play to Keir Starmer's strengths, because you've got a sort of quiet, sombre atmosphere. Like a courtroom. Whereas, uh, and this is forcing also... Yeah, like a courtroom. And this is forcing Boris Johnson then to have to respond in a sort of similar tone. Uh, whereas, you know, we've seen before, Boris Johnson perhaps prefers a slightly different atmosphere. Lots of people cheering like behind him and he can turn and around and... Lots of people cheering. And play to them. And, exactly. Yeah. And you saw signs of that this week when he made that point about the sort of inconsistency um, of Labour's position. And he came out with, you know, what is usual with Prime Minister's questions when there's some kind of sort of pre-written, um, you know, spike or something at uh, the other side and you know that was um, the key one about inconsistency of having a different brief each week as a lawyer um, so that's one of the reasons why they're looking to get you know more people within the chamber as long as respecting social distancing and that's going to be as Steve says one of the interesting things of you know this is still many years away from a general election in theory um, how is Keir Starmer going to cope when the atmosphere has changed when the environment has changed and when Boris Johnson has changed in terms of the way in which he engages with Keir. Bronwyn, I think you uh, raised an interesting point there when you, you said that uh, Johnson's response this week was say he has one brief one day and another brief the next day. And clearly they've looked at how they can deal with this in number 10. And it reminds me when William Hague was really effective early on at Prime Minister's questions against Blair by being witty. He made people laugh at Blair brilliantly. And so number 10 discussed this and Blair came back and said, look, you might be good at the jokes, but you can't do policy. And it killed this attack line that Haig had developed. Any time Haig then deployed, oh, here we here come the jokes. And it killed this very effective onslaught against Tony Blair. Now, number 10 now have clearly decided, let's portray him as this uh, lawyer willing to do different briefs and contradictory briefs. And, and, and Keir Sarman needs to watch that. 
um, because although I think Blair was a more formidable performer than Boris Johnson by miles in the House of Commons, um, it's quite an effective response, actually, to say this is a barrister or just stick to any brief given to him. So over time, he will need to develop his repertoire. The other thing that's implicit in what Steve was saying there is people like us uh, put far too much weight on Prime Minister's questions. And um, you know, it's, it probably is more important at the moment because more people are tuning in, more people are focused on it because this is a crisis that affects everybody's lives. But it, even more important than, than PMQs is how Starmer positions the Labour Party, the top team that he's appointed. I mean, my sense is he's, he's appointed quite a strong shadow cabinet that, that has a bit of heft and that has the opportunity, like Blair's did before 97, to kind of grow into their roles. He's, he's, he's stamped his authority on the Labour Party more rapidly than many people uh, expected and with more ruthlessness. So there's something about the kind of broader positioning uh, that um, uh, at the moment looks quite um, looks quite sort of promising for the Labour Party and for uh, Keir Starmer, but so much, so much water is going to need to flow under the bridge and it, it, the, the, the sort of long-term strategic positioning will be more important than week by week Prime Minister's question time, I think. And there is, in theory, a long-term, uh, uh, that is, you know, four years before the next um, election. So uh, what do you reckon? Is the government going to make it that far? No reason to think why not? I think I think the government will make it. I heard Steve made this point before, but the government will make it. It's, it's much less certain whether Johnson will make it. The, I, the government will, for sure, they're not going to go to an election with that huge majority and risk giving it away when they don't have to. Whether there will be a change of prime minister, I think, is a much more interesting question. And I think that is possible. Uh, but general election, forget it. They're not going to give this majority up in a hurry. And change of cabinet, which flickers through the Sunday papers. Yes, I mean, this is again one of the extraordinary things. We talked about this uh, back earlier in the year. God, it was only this year um, where we had a reshuffle. And, you know, a lot of the time we were saying, uh, you've got to set your team now for a period of time. You've got to have stability in departments. You've got to make sure you pick the right people who can grow into the jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So to be talking yet again about a cabinet reshuffle, it could be, as Steve said earlier, just yet more of this sort of campaign mode that you put the fear of God into people um, that they might be moved on if they don't sort of, you know, buck up and support the prime minister and so forth. Um, but I think, you know, the idea to have another reshuffle and all of that when you've got this crisis going on, I mean, it, it would imply that ministers are really underperforming in their jobs if you've got to move them on when you've got a national crisis going on. Um, this brings us a bit, back around a bit to where we started, but um, uh, there is no doubt that there is awful lot that we have learned and are learning about the effectiveness of the British state, about the way departments work, about the delivery of public services um, uh, and, and about the structure of, of, of government. Um, so there are all sorts of lessons to learn and definitely things that we that the government will want to change the way to do that i would suggest is not uh, a reshuffle and not some sort of short-term machinery of government moves and uh, shuffling of deck chairs but is to take a long hard look at the british state uh, and uh, and to incrementally uh, make the reforms that we know the government wants to do it wants to change the service it wants to um to shake things up but to do that in a way that it intelligently responds to the the, the weaknesses that have been shown by this crisis yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. I, uh, reshuffles rarely make any practical difference, uh, rarely makes any political difference. And it's often a kind of form of therapy for a beleaguered number 10, where they say, <laughs> oh, I know what you move Matt Hancock over, and this will transform everything. Um, and of course, it wouldn't and won't. Um, so uh, if we start hearing serious speculation about a reshuffle, we know they'll have taken the easy route of just changing the people rather than deeply thinking about how to govern 
and whether reforms of the state are required, um, not just changing the personnel yet again. Well, we will definitely take a long, hard look at those things by way of illumination, I hope, not not therapy, um, but we'll have to come to them in future podcasts because that is the end of this week's Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Kath Haddon, Alex Thomas, Steve Richards, and Emma Norris, who joined us right at the beginning. If you want to hear more of our work and discussions, please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. There's some terrific events there. And Kath, on this podcast, discuss what it's like at the heart of government when a crisis breaks. That's really worth listening to. Our colleague, Gavin Freegard, also spoke to Audrey Tang, Taiwan's digital minister, to find out how Taiwan, which is now pandemic-free, has handled the outbreak with such success. And in the coming week, Jill Rutter is going to be joined by an expert panel of scientists and science writers to talk about how political decisions are shaped by scientific advice. Do keep an eye out for that one. You can listen at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and do leave us a review. We welcome a tough inquiry into the Inside Briefing podcast. You can find all our podcasts, all our events, and all our work at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. That's it for today. I'm going to leave you with the difficult social question this weekend of how to ask people to be in your social bubble, and what if you want to be in a bubble with someone and they don't want to be in yours? We can, I guess, offer illumination on that next week. Have a very good weekend. Enjoy the zoo or theme park and see you next week.